Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome. If we've never met, my name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's, and it'd be great to meet you after the service. Uh, one more time for good measure, Christ is risen. Today, we celebrate the confounding joy of resurrection. The tomb of Jesus is empty because he is, in fact, risen. We just read 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is a chapter from a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church in Corinth around 54 AD. So it's very old. And as you just heard, this chapter is all about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. And I wish we could go back in time and just be a fly on the wall and simply observe the church in Corinth, because I think we'd be very surprised by what we see and by what we hear. Things had actually descended to a point that the Apostle Paul has to ask them, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? There were people in the early church in Corinth who believed in no resurrection of the dead. So no Easter, no flowers, no Alistair in a three-piece suit, no joyous celebration. What? Now, this sounds like something you would expect from someone who holds the seemingly reasonable conviction that truly dead bodies don't come back to life. But some of the earliest followers of Jesus in Corinth didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This should be shocking because as counterintuitive as it sounds, it is a non-negotiable belief in the Christian faith that dead stuff comes back to life. So it turns out, and this is important for us to note, if you belong to a church, if you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean you've got this all figured out. Christians can still be as suspicious about the resurrection as anybody else. And it's understandable, of course, because if we're honest with ourselves, how can we not ask, did this really happen? And really, Jesus physically rose from the dead. This is a question that rattles around in all of our hearts. How can it not? And it was a question rattling around in the ancient church of Corinth. And the problem, of course, isn't asking the question. This is a very good question to ask. The concern for Paul is that the Corinthians are not only failing to comprehend the evidence available to them, but they're actually scorning it. Because some of the Corinthians, they've stopped asking the question altogether, and they've settled for an answer that undermines the very faith they claim to believe and the message that Paul proclaims. If you are just joining us today as a church, we've been in a series called Brick and Mortar. We're recognizing that the pandemic has changed our world, it's changed our church, and so we're asking, what does it look like for us to take steps toward the future together. And sometimes the way forward actually requires retracing our steps back to the basics. In this ever-changing world, you know, we can root ourselves in our unchanging foundation, and that's what we're doing in this series. And so if you're interested in what we've covered so far, you can listen to any of those sermons online. And today we're going to look at another brick in our foundation, resurrection. So whether you're a follower of Jesus, curious about him, indifferent toward him, or critical about claims of him. Easter Sunday is this opportunity to discover what the resurrection is all about. It's an opportunity to ask the question out loud, did this really happen? And it's an opportunity to decide, will this confounding joy of resurrection 
make any difference for us. So we're going to have two points to explore the resurrection this morning. I'm letting you off the hook. Normally there's three, but there's just two really long ones. Uh, First importance and the difference. First importance and the difference. So we'll begin with our first point, first importance. If you have a Bible, please open it back up to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't own one, there's great Bibles at the connection table. Please take one of those home with you, and everything will be on the screen behind me as well. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. As a charitable organization in Canada, we have a constitution. If you knew that and read that, wow, good on you. But if you haven't read our constitution, if you do, you'll see that there's several paragraphs that end with this paragraph is unalterable. And that's just to protect it from Nicolas Cage. But if someone were to tinker with these paragraphs, which they can't, what we're saying is that we would cease to be who we set out to be as a society and that we should dissolve and that our assets should be distributed to the appropriate places. Paul recounts matters of first importance to the Corinthians. Essentially, he's saying this paragraph is unalterable. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. Take any of these parts away and you take the whole thing away. Anything less in our faith is in vain, says Paul. This is our foundation. This is the message by which we are being saved. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to many people and they're now witnesses. This is the unalterable message that's been preached since the beginning of the Christian movement from the apostles throughout the centuries, throughout the world today on this Easter Sunday, in this very room right now. This is the message we proclaim because this is the foundation on which we stand. Now, if that's all new to you or if it's well known to you, we need to recognize that none of us ever move beyond the basics of this foundation. And so let's press into these plain truths with Paul. And let's start here. Paul calls Jesus Christ. And most of us, of course, we're used to calling Jesus Christ, but it's important to remember once in a while that Christ is not his last name. Christ is an important little word that means anointed one. Ancient Israel had been waiting expectantly for God to anoint the Messiah, the Christ, to be their king, and he would be a king with an everlasting throne over an everlasting kingdom, free from sin, suffering, oppression, and even death. And Jesus is this Christ. But Paul doesn't just say Christ. He says, Christ died for our sins. We don't believe that his death was accidental or an unfortunate turn of events or a revolution gone wrong because it was all in accordance with Scripture. In other words, on the cross, Jesus willingly fulfilled the many promises of God to atone and forgive our sins once and for all time, to put them away as far as the east is from the west, to remember them no more. 
And so much more could be said about that and was said about that on Good Friday, but today's Easter. And this is the point we really want to focus in on because this is the substance of Easter. Jesus was buried and he was raised on the third day. And as I've said, this is the point where the church in Corinth, they're a little bit off kilter. And we're going to have questions about anything Paul said so far, but especially on this point. How can we not ask, did this really happen? Buried and raised. And so Paul, what he does is he reminds the Corinthians, he reminds us of the facts. He states it plainly. Jesus was buried. And the scriptures, they emphasize very, very strongly that the body of Christ was physically there in the tomb. He was certified dead by Roman centurions and by Pilate, and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were authorized to take his body, to place it in the tomb. It was sealed. It was guarded. Again and again, the Gospels want to make it plain as possible. There was a physical dead body. People confirmed it, handled it, buried it. And on the third day, that body was raised from the dead. Jesus was physically raised from the dead, not spiritually raised from the dead. His dead body was raised to life. It was a physical, material resurrection. And once again, the Gospels make this abundantly clear. They are adamant. This is a physical body. The same body that was buried is now raised and alive in a gloriously different way. Think about our second reading from Luke 24 for a moment with me. Now, Jesus, he appears to the disciples in the upper room. He says, Peace be with you. I always feel like that's like Jesus showing his cards a bit. He's got a sense of humor. If you could freak anyone out, just appearing and saying, peace be with you, great way to do it. And they're so afraid. Why? It's Jesus. They know him. Why are they afraid? They think it's a spirit. They think it's a ghost. Why? Why would they think it's a spirit? Why would they think it's a ghost? Because they know where his body is. They know where his body is. It's in a tomb. So it can't be Jesus. It's got to be an apparition. And so Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verses 39 through 43, see my hands and my feet. In other words, look at the scars. They're still there. It's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before him. I like to think if Jesus appeared to me, I might have a better meal prepared, but broiled fish. The point is this, spirits don't have flesh and bones. They can't be touched and felt. They don't eat. The point is embarrassingly clear. This is a physical body. The dead come back to life. This paragraph is unalterable, and it turns the disciples' world upside down. You know, no, no wonder they were so reluctant to believe what they were seeing. Is this really happening? Now back to Corinthians. Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians because he knows it's hard enough to believe in the resurrection when you're seeing it with your very eyes, let alone to believe simply based off of a message that you've received. He knows that can be hard. But nevertheless, this is the message received. Jesus was buried, and on the third day he was raised. And it was all in accordance with Scripture. This didn't happen out of nowhere. This isn't a fabrication. This isn't the apostles 
importing some ideas from other religions. For example, we read in Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Or Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. 2 Samuel 7, I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Daniel 7, his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. It will never pass away. And Ezekiel 37, my servant shall be prince forever. And so the entirety of the Old Testament points to this day when God's everlasting king will bring in a resurrection era of physical life for eternity, a physical kingdom, a material kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But the expectation was that this would happen at the end of time, at the end of history. And to everybody's surprise, it's happening now within history. We now live in a resurrection reality. And there's still one more area of first importance. Paul says, Jesus appeared. Look at verses 7 through 9. He appeared to Cephas, another name for the apostle Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus appeared to people. They're eyewitnesses. Someone once estimated if all the eyewitnesses were put on the stand to testify, the case would go on for over three weeks of uninterrupted eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. That's how much eyewitness uh, evidence there was. And some of the Corinthians, maybe they're thinking, this is just fantastical imaginations of the apostles. Or it's just a hoax. So let's take the good out of it, but like not believe in all that stuff. But what Paul's saying to them then is a really bold thing to do if it's all a hoax. Remember, it's only about 20 years since Jesus died. It's around 54 AD. So Paul's saying, go and talk to someone. Go talk to any of these eyewitnesses. Many of them are still alive. Ask them what they saw. And all of this is Paul's attempt to bring the Corinthians back to matters of first importance because some of them have ceased to believe in the resurrection of the body. And he asks, how can that be so? How can you believe there's no resurrection of the dead? But I also believe there's a subtext to that question we all ask. Did this really happen? There's a subtext. And I believe what we're actually asking is, what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? And so let's ask the question another way. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? What happened to the body of Jesus? The Roman or Jewish leaders couldn't have stolen the body because if they did, that would have just fueled all the rumors of a resurrection. And if they had stolen the body, all they had to do was return the body, show the body, put an end to it. It didn't happen. The disciples couldn't have stolen the body because it's very clear both in scriptures and beyond the scriptures that Jewish leaders responsible for Christ's death placed guards at the tomb. It wasn't happening. It can't be auto-suggestion because the resurrection was the last thing the disciples were expecting. And we see it took much convincing for them to believe they were even seeing it. And as I've already said, in ancient Judaism, the expectation was for the resurrection to occur at the end of history, not within it. This wasn't an idea that would just pop into their minds. And of course, there's this revivication theory that occasionally makes the round. 
some people like to say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't fully dead. So after being flogged, crucified, speared in his side, he wakes up in the tomb, takes off the linens, rolls the stone away, overcomes the guards, and with holes in his feet, walks the road to Emmaus, pretending like he's raised from the dead as if these two disciples couldn't put it together. I mean, what that theory shows is we'll believe anything other than the facts presented in Scripture. But let me be really clear and honest. You know, the New Testament, it doesn't prove the resurrection happened. Not in the way we were probably thinking it would prove it that we would want. Historically speaking, all the New Testament does is prove what the early church claimed to have seen and believed. That's what it proves. And so with respect to all the historical evidence we have, here's what scholars, regardless of religious conviction, agree upon. There's two points. Jesus' tomb was very likely empty shortly after his crucifixion. And from the very beginning, significant numbers of men and women claimed to have seen Christ alive from the dead. Historically, almost every scholar can agree on that. Now, how you account for these two historic points is going to depend largely on what you feel is possible in the world. But in recounting these facts to the Corinthians, let's not overlook something important. Paul includes himself in this list of people who saw Jesus. This letter we read is by a witness. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's saying, Corinthians, let me remind you who I am. I'm a persecutor. I was after this Christian movement. I wanted to put an end to it. Then Jesus appeared to me of all people, and on the road to Emmaus, I was blinded by his presence and days later received my sight back, entrusted with this message that I proclaim to you that Christ died in accordance for our sins, in accordance with the scripture, that on the third day he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and even to me. Paul's saying you can stand assured on this foundation. I saw it for myself. You can hold on to these matters of first importance because these, this is the message, this is the totality of the message that saves. Take away any of these points, there is no salvation. So let's move on to our second point then, the difference. You know, what difference does the resurrection make? And, and Paul asks the Corinthians, you know, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And then he really presses into that point in verses 13 through 19, take a look at those with me together. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. So in questioning the resurrection, there's that lurking fear. What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? And Paul's clear. Christianity makes claims about how things really are. 
If the message of Christianity is not true, if not historical, if the resurrection is not physical, then it is a religion of misinformation and falsity. If we're wrong, we're deluded. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Paul's essentially saying, why waste your time with Jesus and Christianity? And he'll go on to reason in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So if there's no resurrection, live however you want to live. Live your life. Make the most of the moment before your time is up. And in fact, that's pretty much what's happening in Corinth. And without the hope of a future bodily resurrection, they're living however they see fit, and they've so blended in with the culture, they've lost what's supposed to make them distinct as followers of Jesus. And many of us in this room, many of us, we live this way as well. You see, we can be Christians and yet still eventually over time keep living for ourselves rather than faith in the resurrection. Now think about how you spend most of your time. Think about what you think about most days. Where does the majority of your time and your energy, your desires, your interests, like what does it all add up to? Where are you spending your emotional capacities? You know, like what is at the core of your life? You know, on some level, do you think, just in case, just in case there's no resurrection, just in case I'm wrong, I better not miss out. I better live the most fulfilling life I can here and now, just in case I'm wrong, and then if I'm not wrong, then I get an extra bonus afterward. Does that ever creep into anybody's thoughts? Yeah, it does in mine occasionally. It's okay. Well, it's not okay, but like it's okay to be honest. The resurrection of the dead is so counterintuitive to us. It's so hard to wrap our minds around that we fall into what Paul's saying here. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But according to Paul, belief in the resurrection should totally change how we live. And here's the thing. We can only eat and drink so much. Because inevitably, no amount of indulgence or entertainment can distract us from this realization. If there's no God, if there's no resurrection, then life is ultimately of no consequence. None. The author Brennan Manning, he struggled with alcoholism for all of his life. And he put his finger right on the issue. And he provokes us to see the discomforting outcome if there's no resurrection. Here's what he writes. Without deliberate awareness of the present risenness of Jesus, which is a great phrase, isn't it? Life is nonsense. All activity useless. All relationships in vain. Apart from the risen Christ, we live in a world of impenetrable mystery and utter obscurity. A world without meaning. A world of shifting phenomena. A world of death, danger, and darkness. A world of inexplicable futility. Nothing is interconnected. Nothing is worth doing, for nothing endures. Nothing is seen beyond appearances. Nothing is heard but echoes dying in the wind. No love can outlast the emotion that produced it. It's all sound and fury. Nice little Shakespeare reference there. With no ultimate significance. Now, Manning is articulating the extreme outcome of this eat and drink for tomorrow we die philosophy. But when addiction takes a hold of someone, it often leads them to 
a vulnerability of, of being exposed to the emptiness of life, to this void. They see it. They're trying to manage it on some level, and they can't. And you might think Manning's comments are a bleak overstatement, but his perspective is the conclusion that many philosophers have arrived at over the course of history as well. It's the despairing cry of facing the facts of pure naturalism or materialism, and not only from someone who's in the throes of addiction. But of course, there's an alternative. There's an alternative, what Manning calls deliberate awareness of the present risenness of Christ, and what Paul calls matters of first importance. But what if we just can't quite believe it? What if we hear all this matters of first importance, but we can't quite take that step? We can't quite say, yes, Jesus was physically raised from the dead. What do we do? Briefly, I just want to think about a few places that the risen Lord appeared. In a garden to Mary Magdalene, on the road to two disciples, and in the upper room to a few disciples. And these appearances, all of them teach us something important. We cannot discern his presence naturally. Because in the garden, Mary initially saw a gardener. On the road to Emmaus, the two disciples thought they saw another traveling companion. In the upper room, the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. So if we're blind to resurrection reality all around us, we need the gift of sight. We need the gift of holy curiosity to give us a wonder and an awe of his presence in the everyday ordinary happenings of life. And so we can pray, Lord, open my heart, open my mind, open my eyes to see that you're alive. Open my mind to receive this message that's been delivered throughout the centuries. And I'm not promising that we'll see him the way the witnesses did. If any of you do, I'd love to hear about it. But the Lord reveals himself to us still in ways that are comprehensible to us. And indeed, Paul says, this is a message that we receive. It's a, it's a gift and the Lord can open our eyes to see the truth of this message. And so if you're struggling with resurrection, if you're struggling to believe in this message, if you can't come to a sense of the present risenness of Christ, I simply want to invite you to bring that with you on a journey with us. Keep asking the question. Because there are many people in this room who feel like they have encountered the risen Lord, who have received this message with joy and see life in a completely new light. And we'd be pleased to walk alongside you patiently as you ask the questions and try to figure it out. But hear me, most importantly, you need to come to Jesus and ask him to receive the gift of sight. So lastly, what difference does the resurrection make for those of us who believe? Uh, standing on a street corner many, many years ago, G.K. Chesterton, he was a well-known English writer at the turn of the 20th century. He was approached by a news reporter who said, Sir, I understand you recently became a Christian. May I ask you a question? Chesterton said, certainly, and here's what he asked. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? And Chesterton looked the reporter squarely in the eyes and he said, he is. He is. The difference that the resurrection makes is that Jesus is here he is alive. He is well. It's not just Easter Sunday. It's Easter every day for the Christian. In resurrection reality, we learn then to tend to his presence, to be like Chesterton, to say, he is. He is standing behind me. 
And so we practice a deliberate awareness of the present risenness of Jesus because he is behind us. He's alongside us more accurately. His spirit dwells in us all together. Because Jesus is risen, he's alive and a well, and he's with us always to the end of the age. That is his promise to us. He's with us in the garden, on the road, in the room. In other words, he's with us in our work, in our travel, in our homes. He is always everywhere with us in everything. Even when you get the diagnosis or when accidents happen or when you lose someone or something you can't replace or when something breaks and it cannot be restored, when you fall short yet again, Jesus is with us. You're never alone, never left to carry the burden, pain, or suffering on your own shoulders because Jesus is alive and he's well and he's with you. Quite a few years ago now, I had to sit down in front of our church and apologize for mishandling a staff change. And I had to own my mistakes and ask for forgiveness, and it was not easy to do, but it was necessary. And after the meeting, I was still feeling the weight of all of it. I was feeling terrible about myself. And the meeting had gone much better than previous meetings. If any of you were there back then, you know it went better. But I was feeling all of that, and then a friend of mine, he came up to me afterwards, and he planted a kiss right on my forehead, and he said, you're golden. I'll never, I've never forgotten it. I mean, it wasn't passionate like this painting, The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. It was a close second. Like, it kind of had, like, a beauty to it. My friend walked up to me, kissed me on the forehead. He said, you're golden. And in that moment, time stood still, and it was as if Christ himself kissed me on the forehead. And the truth is, he did. Because Christ was dwelling in my friend, led my friend to do that for me. And in that moment, all the shame I was feeling, it just gave way to love and acceptance and peace. The resurrection kisses us with the promise that out of all this darkness comes light, but not just light, gold. Our future is golden in Christ. Because Jesus is with us and for us. Nothing can stand against us, not even death itself. As the scriptures say, death is swallowed up in victory, the victory of Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so Jesus, he is alive and well and with us even in death. And he promises that our physical bodies will be raised to eternal life at the resurrection of the dead. Our future is physical. Jesus, he'll kiss us and he'll welcome us into his presence in a new heavens, a new earth, still physical and material, yet perfected and glorified and full of beauty. This is resurrection reality. This is what we're celebrating today. And so if you stand in this matter of first importance, if you hold fast to the resurrection, it means your life, not someone else's life, not some other life you'll never live, not some idealized version of yourself, your life right now as you really are with all the mess that it comes with and all the good it comes with too. Your life truly and really intersects with Christ. So tend to his presence, friends. Discern his presence at the table when we say the words, the Lord is here, his spirit is with us. See his presence among his people as we give and receive love. Tend to his presence in your life and in the world. Because we're invited to live and love and pursue justice and proclaim the gospel in the name of Jesus 
as we continually align ourselves to his present risenness. So pay attention. Keep your eyes open because Jesus is with us. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray.